He's short, he's bald, and he's feisty. We're talking to Steve Ray about St. Paul. Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papa. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Hack with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to The Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean. This is episode number 76. And today we welcome back Steve Ray to the show. We're going to be talking about St. Paul in the year of St. Paul. And it's going to be an exciting conversation, and I hope you're looking forward to that. But let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Heavenly Father, all-glorious and all-powerful God, I come before Thee to humble myself, to beg Your mercy. Father, I lift up to You all expecting mothers, that you might give them the grace to endure labor gracefully. I lift up to you all families, that you might strengthen them, strengthen their marriage and the sacrament. I lift up all men who are addicted to pornography, that you might free them from their slavery. I pray for the conversion of sinners, and especially the conversion of our president, Barack Obama. And I ask extra graces during this Lent, that we might endure our sufferings, uniting them to the cross and lifting them up for the glory of God Almighty and for the benefit of those who need it most. We seek this in your mercy, and we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Speaking of Lent, here's Greg Cuter from the Divine Mercy Podcast with a Lenten program just for you. This Lent, join me in meditating daily on the sorrowful passion of our Lord by praying at least one decade of the rosary every day. During this prayer time, we will meditate on the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, and to help keep us focused, we will hear a reading from the book The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ by St. Anne Catherine Emmerich. Listen to a saint tell the story of the passion of our Lord in this Vatican-approved narrative where she was granted visions of the events that took place during that sorrowful journey that brought us our salvation. This recording will be available in both the MP4 and MP3 format. You can download the audio file by going to the Divine Mercy Podcast page at divinemercypodcast.com and clicking on the link for the Lenten special. I hope you will take advantage of this opportunity to spend time in prayer every day and to reflect on the sacrifice offered for the expiation of our sins. May the merciful Jesus fill your heart with his gentle peace. God bless you and those you love. And remember, at every moment, do what love requires.
When Jesus performs a physical healing, he intends it to be a sign of something greater still. For those healings are themselves temporary. All those who are healed must still go on to die. But their cure is a sign of a more complete healing that overcomes even death. Find out more next on Breaking the Bread. This Sunday's Gospel makes explicit what has been implied in preceding weeks. Namely, that in healing the sick and casting out demons, Jesus is manifesting the power of God's mercy for his people's sins. They had wearied of God, refused to call upon his name, as we hear in our Sunday's first reading. Despite that, God promises to remember their sins no more. Sin is often compared to sickness in Scripture, and the responsorial psalm this Sunday reads like a foretelling of the gospel scene. The man is helped on his sickbed, healed of his sins, and made able to stand before the Lord forever. The scribes know that God alone can forgive sins. That's why they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. He appears to be claiming equality with God. But the gospel turns on this recognition. The scene marks the first time in the gospels that Jesus commends the faith of a person or persons who've come to him. With the eyes of faith, the paralytic and his friends can see what the scribes do not. Jesus' divine identity and power. He reveals himself as the Son of Man, alluding to the mysterious heavenly figure that the prophet Daniel saw receiving kingship over all the earth and forever. Jesus' reply to the scribes even echoes what God said to Pharaoh when he sent plagues upon Egypt, that you may know that I am the Lord. As St. Paul tells us in this Sunday's epistle, Jesus is God's great amen. Amen means so be it. And in Jesus, God has said so be it, fulfilling all of the promises of his covenants throughout salvation history. We are the new people he has formed, the family of God that announces his praise. And he calls each of us what Jesus calls the paralytic, his child. But do we share this man's faith? To what lengths are we willing to go to encounter Jesus? And how much are we willing to sacrifice so that our friends too might hear his saving word? This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Well, as I said, today we're bringing back Steve Ray, and we're talking about St. Paul and the year of St. Paul. What was St. Paul like? What did he look like? How did he act? What did he endure? We're going to get into all of that today, so let's roll up our sleeves, and let's dive deep, and let's get into the truth about St. Paul. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This school, when I sit, even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, all on the floor and the door, can't get enough, got to come back with some more. Hey, we've got a problem here. Sinner, every woman, every can benefit in this school. Mr. Emmett, take her down. Make your death one five zero feet. 
10 degree down bubble. 150 feet, 10 degree down bubble. Aye, sir. Dive, dive, dive. Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and today we have a returning guest, Steve Ray. Steve Ray is a convert to the Catholic Church and the author of three best selling Ignatius Press books Crossing the Tiber, Upon This Rock, and St. John's Gospel. He speaks at conferences around the world and is a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live, The Journey Home, and has appeared on many other radio and TV programs, including Fox News. He is a writer and producer and host of the 10-part video DVD series, The Footprints of God, The Story of Salvation from Abraham to Augustine, filmed entirely on location in the Holy Land and surrounding countries. Steve and his wife, Janet, are certified guides to the Holy Land and lead pilgrimages throughout the Middle East and Rome. He owns distinctive maintenance with over 500 employees in Michigan and is a member of Legatus. He lives in Michigan with his wife, Janet, and has four children and six grandchildren. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Joe. It's always good to be here. Well, Steve, I was uh, very pleased to run into you out in Atlanta uh, after the Eucharistic Congress and just before the Catholic New Media celebration, which we were having on Sunday. And I, I was very much pleased to meet you and your, and your wife and, uh, and snatch up a photo of you. And, and uh, that was really just an honor to me. I just wanted to say that right out of the gate here. But well, let me say it was an honor for us as well. And we've done podcasting here together. And uh, I know that you're working with Fullness of Truth now. And all that you're doing, it was an honor for us to meet you. Well, thank you so much. We are in the year of St. Paul. And I think you have a very unique perspective on this topic because you've spent so much time, you know, discovering and, and the, where St. Paul lived, what he did, where he walked, what he taught. And uh, you've been able to bring that to us, the faithful, in a very unique and colorful way through your work. So I would really love to, uh, to have you expound upon what the year of St. Paul really means and who this man who this man is and what should we know about him? Well, our, I think our perspective is a little unique because it doesn't come just from reading the Bible and doing theological studies on St. Paul, which I've done. And even with CatholicScriptureStudies.com, I've done a, a whole study on the book of Acts with him, a year's Bible study. But I also, my wife and I, three years ago, went for about a month, even a little more than that, through all the lands of St. Paul with our video crew, and we filmed the life of St. Paul in six countries. I did things like fall off the horse on the road to Damascus, came down in the basket on the wall of Damascus like Paul did. I was floating uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea on driftwood to see and to show what it was like for St. Paul. I even had a snake bite me uh, <laughs> to show what it was like to have Paul get bit by a snake on the island of Malta. So we really went through his life from the beginning in Tarsus. We spent time filming there in Tarsus, in Turkey, and in Antioch, and in Israel, and all through Greece, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, um, all through Athens and Corinth, and then all the way to Rome, and even went to Damascus, Syria. So we've got this kind of a unique, I think, perspective on Paul walking in his sandals. For uh, Actually, we did two trips over there to do it, and I felt like I got to know the guy. And from all the Bible study I'd done on him, that was all great and wonderful. But to actually walk in his footprints, to go to the places where he went, to see how far it was from one place to another, to see how hot it was in Damascus, to see how far he came down the wall in the basket, all of these things made me feel like I knew him and realized also what a tough, wiry, stubborn, 
irascible in a good way, of course, mm. man that he was. He just latched onto God, and he wasn't going to let go no matter what happened. He was going to follow God. I'm very glad that Pope Benedict made this the year of St. Paul, both because I think that he really needs to be known by people. We read his epistles, we hear his word, but very few people know much about him. And I think it's we need to know about him because in today's age, we have very few heroes. Mm. We have a lot of people who are famous for being well-known, people like rock stars and movie stars and sports figures who make a lot of money. But these people aren't real heroes that stand up for a moral cause and put their life on the line for what's right. And St. Paul rises like cream to the top as one of the great heroes of all time. And our kids today, our kids, especially our Catholic families and the kids that we're raising, need to have real heroes, somebody that they can look at because our kids want to be uh, heroic. They want something to, that's worth dying for. They want to do something that matters in the world. And St. Paul is a perfect example, and I think it was brilliant of Pope Benedict to make this the year of St. Paul, recognizing the 2000th anniversary of his birth. Wow. Now, St. Paul, I think there are some misconceptions about St. Paul, um, maybe from a Protestant perspective, but maybe you can help us clear some of these, some of these misconceptions up. Was St. Paul uh, against St. Peter? Were, were he, was he uniquely uh, outside of the, of the apostles? Compare his, contrast his theology with that of the other apostles. Because, and, I, and I ask this question because from my own perspective as a convert to the church, you get that sort of indwelling idea in your mind that St. Paul was completely different. You know, he received his vocation from Jesus himself and didn't need to check in with the others. And he taught, the Lone Ranger. Right, exactly. He taught <laughs> faith alone. And, and, and then you watch the Anthony Hopkins movie and you're just really baffled by, by these things. And so if you could maybe talk about his character and... I mean, give well, us some historical isn't, context. Isn't Peter the Catholic apostle and Paul the Protestant apostle? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, yeah. That's the way I used to think. But I, I would venture a guess that if you were to really get into people's heads, Catholic and Protestant alike, there, was many, there would be many that have the mentality that Peter is the Catholic apostle. That was kind of the pope and, and uh, the leader. But then Paul was the Protestant apostle. He was the lone ranger out doing his own thing. God called him right from without any of the other apostles involved. God called him and sent him out to do his own thing, and he was separate from the church and the apostles. And that's where Baptists get their ideas that they can have their own independent congregations because they follow St. Paul. Right. But they would never call him St. Paul. They would just call him Paul or the Apostle Paul. Um, but this is unfortunately too much of a perception that people have. First of all, St. Paul was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus called Peter on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus. He did, he's called both of them. Paul was just a little bit later after Jesus had risen from the dead. But Paul was not opposed to Peter. In fact, it's very interesting that when Paul refers to Peter, he doesn't refer to him as Simon. I think only once he might. But most of the time, especially in the book of Corinthians and in Galatians, he refers to Peter as Cephas. That is the word that comes from Kepha, the rock. When Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, what, the way it came out in Aramaic when Jesus spoke those words is, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. And from the word Kepha comes the word Cephas, the rock. So when Paul says he was 
concerned about his gospel. He had received it. Jesus had revealed to him what he was to preach. But he came to that Peter and to the apostles, and it says that he came to them to submit his gospel so that he knew he was not preaching his gospel in vain. Right. He came to receive the right hand of fellowship so that he would know his gospel was not in vain. In other words, he submitted what he was teaching, even though he believed he had received it from Jesus Christ personally and directly. He also says that he received much of what he knew from tradition, what was handed on to him. But he says that he received this from Jesus, but he took it and submitted it to the church so that he would know that he had their blessing. It also says at one point in Galatians that he went up to see Peter. He says, I went up to see Cephas. And the Greek word he uses there is not just to have a meeting with him, but it's the Greek word used for if I go to see the pyramids or I go to see St. Peter's, some big, amazing thing, you want to go view it. He said, I went up to see Cephas. And I didn't talk to anyone else, he said. I was there with Peter and Cephas for two weeks. Oh, would I have loved to have been a fly on the wall listening to their <laughs> conversations for those two weeks. But Peter, Paul came up to visit Cephas, Peter, to learn from him, to understand the fullness of what Jesus did and said when he was here, and all the experiences that Peter had with Jesus. But he respected Peter as the head of the church. Now, there's one passage that many Protestants, including me in my former life, used to use, and that is where Peter was compromising the gospel. He said that Gentiles and Jews were equal, and yet he was separating himself from the Gentiles and eating only with the Jews. And Paul confronted him, he says in Galatians 8, I confronted him to his face because he was a hypocrite. And Peter backed down. So people say, aha, see, first of all, Paul was against Peter. And second, that proves there's no Petrine infallibility. <laughs> On both cases, wrong, right. not right. In first case, Paul was a bold man, and if he saw anything being done wrong, he would confront it, even if it isn't Peter. And of, of course, uh, Catherine of Siena is a doctor of the church, and she confronted the Pope right. one time when he had taken the church, the papacy outside of Rome to Avignon, and she confronted him, right. and he did not get angry over it, but she was even made a doctor of the church. With all due respect, we can oppose a practice of the Pope, and it's not going to be anything that is uh, held against us. But also, by confronting Peter for something that he did wrong is very different than confronting him for something that he taught wrong. The fact is, is that people respected Peter so much that they were doing what he did, not only what he taught, but also what he did. And the Church only guarantees the fallibility of the Pope in what he teaches. When he, had, when he sets his mind as the pastor of the Church to officially define doctrine for the people of God and of his own free will, then the Holy Spirit guarantees that there will be no error involved in his teaching. But never does the Holy Spirit promise that the Pope will always do the right thing mm -hmm. or always live up to the 100% up to what he has already taught. So Paul was confronting Peter, not for what he taught wrong, but for the fact that he was not living up to what he taught. And that has nothing to do with infallibility. It only has to do with the practice. Mm -hmm. So Paul did not have this attitude of the Lone Ranger. He even says at one point, we do the same thing in all the churches. In other words, you can't just do what you want in your church in Philippi and then over here in Thessalonians. You guys, you got your own independent congregation. You can do what you want. He says, no, what I'm teaching you, we do it in all the churches. And then I will say one more thing. 
about Paul and Peter, and then I'll go to another topic here, but I think it's interesting and needs to be said, is that there were Gentiles and Jews, and the Jews, some of them were saying Gentiles, could not become Christians unless they became circumcised first. And Paul had been preaching to Gentiles, and so had many in the church of Antioch, and they came down, or they went up actually, you always go up to Jerusalem. On a map it looks like it's down, but in reality you go up to Jerusalem, no matter what angle you're coming at it from. And Paul and Barnabas brought this dilemma up to Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. And this is in Acts chapter 15. It took place in the year 49 A.D. And they presented it to the church. What should we do about the Gentiles? Should they, do they have to be circumcised? And Peter stood up and said no. And he made a dogmatic, doctrinal decision that said no. Then James said, let's send a letter out. So they wrote a letter, and Paul sent that letter, to actually delivered it with Barnabas to all the churches up in Asia Minor, the Gentiles. The interesting thing is, is that there was a council there. Before the Bible was ever put, in to get, put together into a book, before they could ever say sola scriptura, the church had the authority to make a binding decision upon all of the churches, and Paul was himself subject to that decision. And on top of that, if you go to Acts chapter 16 and look at verse 4, it calls what they did a decree, that they sent the decree out. But when you look at it in the Greek, the word there is dogma. The church, the council of the church in Acts 15 sent out a dogma, and it was binding upon all the church, all the churches in Asia Minor. Paul recognized the dogma. He was subject to it, and the church recognized Peter and the apostles as being the heads of the church. Wow. Wow, you know, it's funny because I did a whole podcast on um, the episode between uh, Paul and Peter over the Jews, Judaizers coming down and and over Peter's behavior, and I contrast that particular episode with St. Paul's own teaching in, in the book of Romans, where he talks about be, being a stumbling block to others, and the fact that he can eat meat, and the, the, the point that I try to make is, I think that we often take that out of context, I think we look at that episode as, as, as Paul, you know, uh, pointing his finger into Peter's face, and then showing how he's how he's just fallible and weak. But in reality, I think that Paul actually learned something out of this episode because he goes on to teach, and we wrote Romans after that event occurred. He goes on to teach that he can't be a stumbling block for others just because there is a Christian who doesn't know that it's okay to eat meat, you know, and he does, doesn't mean he should be eating meat because it causes scandal. And so right. I, I think that that, uh, that your point is really well made there, that that Paul is not in complete contrast to to St. Peter, as is a misconception, I think, in, in modern you know, Protestantism and Christianity. It's really sad to, to see that. And I think that it's, yeah. it's nice to have a year of St. Paul so we can dispel some of these myths about, about uh, St. Paul. And it's funny because we are naming this, this conference in August the Gospel According to St. Paul. You know how many Protestants will see that and feel like we're stealing their guy away from them? <laughs> yeah, you know? that's interesting. Yes, and, and I'm very looking forward to that conference because I'm doing two talks there with Scott Hahn and the others. I'm going to be doing a talk on the, the a virtual tour of St. Paul's life, the footprints of St. Paul. And then I'm going to be doing a talk about the priesthood and the Eucharist in the, in the teachings of Paul. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But you're right that uh, the gospel according to St. Paul is very much a Catholic gospel. And 
land that's been hijacked from us, and it's about right. time we reclaim it. So let's can you set some historical context for us? Talk about Saul before he becomes, you know, uh, as we know him, Saint Paul. What kind of man was this? Uh, what was his vocation? Uh, what was he like? Okay, let's start out with Saulus Paulus, the little boy. He had two names. One was Saul. He was named after, that was his Jewish name. He was named after the first king of Israel named Saul. He had another name named Paul, which was his Roman name. And in those days, it would have been pronounced not Saul, but Saulus. Hmm. And Paul would have been pronounced Paulus. So he was little Saulus Paulus, you could say. And he was born in Tarsus, up in what's today Turkey. And it was Asia Minor then, above Syria. And probably his family came from Galilee, his uh, grandparents or parents, and they were probably employed up in Tarsus making tents. Maybe they were taken as slaves, maybe they were employed, we don't know. And we only know that he ends up being born there in Tarsus, and he is a Roman citizen. So it's probably the fact that his grandfather or father served the emperor well or the local government or the, the army there, and he was granted as a reward Roman citizenship so that Paul was then born as a Roman citizen with citizenship. I love the passage when the Roman soldiers has Paul chained, and he's got a whip, and he's just ready to whoop up Paul, and he, Paul looks up to him and says, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not been charged by a court? Uh-huh. And the soldier says, no, no, it's not, and he pulls back his whip quickly. He's afraid. He says, I bought my citizenship with a large sum of money, and Paul said, I was born a Roman. I love that passage. <laughs> but Saul was re- born in Tarsus, which had eclipsed Athens as the center of philosophy and culture. So you imagine God preparing this young man from the very beginning, and he's preparing him in a place like Tarsus, which is the world headquarters of, at the time, like Athens used to be, for philosophy and culture and learning. So he's learning the Greek language, and he's learning the life and the culture of the Greeks, and at the same time, he's being raised in a very strict Jewish family. Mm-hmm. He said that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, which implies that his father, at least, was a Pharisee and was being and was raising Paul very strictly according to the Hebrew religion. And so he's getting the best of both worlds, the best of the Greek and the best of the Jewish Jerusalem. He's got both of these, and at a certain point, he moves to Jerusalem. And we know Paul had a sister, and his sister lived in Jerusalem, so that the likelihood is that his whole family at some point moved back to Jerusalem. And, and likely so, because they were very strict Jews, and where would a very strict and orthodox Pharisee want to live? In Jerusalem, the heart of the religion where God dwells. So they moved down to Jerusalem, and he's there trained under the rabbi called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is known even today as one of the best and the brightest of the Jewish rabbis fact, they didn't even call him rabbi. They called him rabbon, which means our rabbi. Ooh. And Paul was being trained at his feet. Paul was one of the best and the brightest students at the feet of the best and the brightest rabbi. And imagine again what God is doing, preparing this young man for the work that he's got for him. And so Paul, being named Saul at the time, is there working, learning and studying under Gamaliel, but also there's a saying that you had to have another career. Even the rabbi said that the, if you do not teach your son a trade, you teach him to be a thief. That you need both to study the law and to work with your hands if you want to resist sin. That's what they said. So Paul was trained as a tent maker. 
his family was tent makers, and they would probably make tents out of Cilician goat hair. And I've wow. been in these kind of tents before. They're, they're quite nice, and they breathe, and the rain stays out, but you can see through the fabric with a lanolin. It's very nice. So there's Paul in Jerusalem uh, being raised. And then all of a sudden, out of the north, comes a group of 12 men with a leader who is a carpenter, a redneck, some guy who spends his day out in the sun chipping away at rocks. We know that Jesus was a carpenter, but the Greek word there is tekton, one who works with hard materials. And he didn't have a carpenter shop like we know today. Most likely, Jesus and Joseph worked in a city called Sepphoris, right next to Nazareth, a big construction, booming Roman construction site. And there they would spend 12 hours a day in the sun, redneck workers, chipping away with hammer and chisel at stones to make them square so that the Romans could use them to build their houses, their walls, their theaters. Mm. And so all of a sudden, out of the north, from Galilee, comes these, this motley crew that smell like fish. They're not doctors of the law. They've not been educated by the rabbis. They're coming along with a carpenter who says that he is somebody special, the Son of God. And then he ends up being crucified on a cross. And the Jews, the Pharisees, just pull their hair out, saying, how can this be the Messiah? Why are you people following him? Don't you know that anyone that hangs upon a tree is cursed? And he's dead. Why do you follow him? And Paul, who's then called Saul, is struggling so hard because they want to bring in the kingdom of God and the way to get rid of the Roman emperor who's in charge of them and to get Rome out of Israel again to fall on their knees and begin to cry out to God and obey the Mosaic law and to live a righteous life. And that's what they're trying to do. And then this guy called Jesus comes down, this carpenter, with his fisherman group of guys and even one bad tax collector in the bunch, and they're saying you don't have to follow Moses like this anymore. You don't have to go off of the sacrifices in the temple. That this this carpenter is the Messiah. And, they're, and, the, and the Pharisees just went crazy. They wanted to get rid of these people, and rightfully so from their perspective. Phineas in the Old Testament, he was a man who was uh, saw sin going on, and he grabbed his spear and he ran, and ran it right through a man and a woman in a tent because they were the man had married a foreign wife, and it said God was so pleased with Phineas because he was zealous and jealous for the God of Israel that he blessed him with priesthood from the rest of his life, and so. Paul was like that, I think. He saw the Christians as being the ultimate enemy of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And Jesus and the apostles and these smelly fishermen, they had to be stopped. And that's why they were stoned, and that's why Jesus was killed, and that's why Stephen was killed. Wow. Wow. So what kind of uh, – a couple of questions came to mind while you were saying all that. One, tecton, hard materials, well, that's sort of like my heart, so that's a good fit for Jesus. <laughs> but uh, a couple of other things is I wondered when you were sitting there talking about the formation of St. Paul in his early years under the good rabbi, like what kinds of things would he have studied? You mentioned Greek, obviously Hebrew, Aramaic, I assume. What about— Paul probably knew four languages, five languages. Really? Is my guess. One would be Hebrew because anybody as a Pharisee would be studying the scriptures in the original Hebrew. And they would also know Greek because Paul, we know, quoted the Greek— Old Testament 80% of the time right. that he quotes the Old Testament it's in the Greek and he also wrote in Greek he would have known Aramaic because that was the language of the streets that's the language you did business in he would have also known Latin I think because he was a Roman citizen and that was the Roman legal language 
even on the cross of Jesus that said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And I think the fifth language he probably would have known was many of these town cities up there in Asia Minor had their own dialects. And he probably know, would have spoken a Tarsian from Tarsus dialect or language that was the way that they lived their um, culture there. And so he probably knew these languages. And when he's studying with Gamaliel, we know from the from the Mishnah, which is the uh, Jewish uh, tradition, that at five years old, they, the, any boy should be now take, learning the scriptures. And at 10 years old, they learn the Mishnah, the tradition of the Jews. And at 13, they are now subject to the law of Moses. So here we see already a progression from scripture to tradition to the law. He's now subject to the law. At 13, he takes the Jewish religion as his own, no longer because it's mommy and daddy. But now, it's my religion. I'm a man at 13, and I read the Torah myself. I do this. Much like confirmation should be in the Catholic Church. It's not just this little ceremony. Confirmation is where a young man and a young woman stand up and say, I'm not a Catholic anymore because mommy and daddy are, or because I took the class. But they say, I'm willing to die for Jesus right now because as a young man, I'm becoming an adult or an adult woman. At this age in confirmation, I am taking the Catholic faith as my own now, and I'm not doing it for any my parents. I'm doing it for myself. And this is the way Saul would have been. He has taken the faith now, the scriptures, the law, the tradition as his own. And they would have memorized scripture. The Pharisees sometimes boasted of having the whole Old Testament memorized and knowing it so well that if you put a scroll, if you put the pin through the scroll, they could tell you every word that it went through as it passed through the layers of the scroll. That's how well they knew the scriptures. And so this is what Paul was being trained to follow and the God of Israel to be jealous for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wow. One of the other things that you talked about that really uh, sort of stood out to me was the fact that he had to have a trade as well as studying the law. And that sort of makes sense in uh, in First Corinthians. I think it's chapter 9. He talks about how he is entitled to the fruits of his ministry, but he doesn't take any. And in fact, yeah. he's working hard himself. So this is sort of a holdover from his upbringing and his formation. Exactly. You know, that exactly. he, he felt the need to have a vocation and work and provide for his own needs, even yeah. though he was entitled to the to the community providing for him. Yep, that was I thought that was pretty unique. Exactly, you're absolutely right. So, okay, so we, we see the formed Saul now. We see his desire to to live out the law and to purify, you know, his people. And so, how do we get into Saint Paul? Talk about his conversion. Okay, he's uh, he is uh, just out of the stone quarry where he had been approving the, the stoning and the martyrdom of St. Stephen. In fact, where they stoned Stephen outside the Damascus Gate, you can still walk out of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem today, and there's still the remains of the stone quarry out there. And the way they stoned someone was you threw them off a cliff, a 10 or 12-foot cliff, and then the accuser would take a big rock from the top and throw it down on his chest or try to crush his head. And if that didn't kill him, then all the people in the, in the village would get, uh, take off their cloaks and they'd start to boom, boom, chucking rocks at them until they're dead. And it says this is the first time that we meet Saul the Pharisee. We don't meet him in the Gospels. We don't meet him in the early church before this point. We meet him at the martyrdom of Stephen, and we learn two things, that he is approving of them and holding the cloaks while they're stoning Stephen. And then it says he gets papers from the, the court and from the Sanhedrin to go out and arrest all the Christians. And the next thing we see is him galloping up the way towards Damascus, which is a long right, by the way. So it would be 
if you're going to walk it, it would be many days of walking, which is why I think he was riding a horse. It was a military expedition. And he's galloping up there to get the Christians, and he's coming around the bend of the last curve. And I stood there the first time that I went to Damascus. I stood on that curve in the road when you're coming out of the highlands, and now you're going down into the valley, and then you come along the last curve in the road, and you look down, nine miles down in the valley is the city of Damascus. And I remember standing there for almost an hour, part of the time with tears in my eyes, thinking of what God had done on that very place 2,000 years ago, that he had converted, he had come down to speak to a man, he had changed a man's heart, and that man had changed the world. He had changed not only the world, but even eternity because of what he has done. And Paul was stubborn. His conversion was instantaneous. He was just as stubborn for Jesus afterwards as he was for the God of Israel and the law of Moses before. He was always fighting for God, always zealous for God, both before and after his conversion. It's only he redirected his zealousness after the conversion because he got a deeper understanding of what Moses was talking about, a deeper understanding of what the Messiah was and who he was going to be. And so as he, I just looked down on Damascus, and I just thought of that there's nobody that has affected the Western world and our culture more other than Jesus, than St. Paul, which is why I think it's a marvelous thing that the Pope has made this the year of St. Paul. Nobody's works have been studied and read and written about like St. Paul's, only maybe the Gospels. And so I sat there, stood there looking down at the 100 degrees, down at Damascus, thinking about Paul coming around the last bend in the curve, and there God knocked him off his high horse, both literally and spiritually, morally in a sense, and Paul was blinded, and from heaven you heard, he heard the voice in Hebrew, by the way, Saulus, Saulus, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church, or why are you persecuting my people? It's a very strange thing, he says, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus was in heaven. You can't persecute him, even if you wanted to. You can't reach up to heaven and pull Jesus down and beat him up. How could it be that he's persecuting me? Well, when we were filming it, my wife walked over, and she stomped on my foot at this point. And I said, ouch! And then I said, notice, my wife stomped on my foot. It's my foot that got hurt, but it's my head that yelled, ouch. When we are persecuted as the church, it's Jesus the head that says, ouch. He's the one that feels the pain as well as us. And how much does he love us? He loves us so much that he not only gave himself to die on the cross for us after becoming a man and then a slave and then dying for us on the cross, not only does he love us enough to feed us himself in the Eucharist, but he even loves us so much that he makes us part of himself. He draws us right up into himself, into the mystical body of Christ. And when he speaks of us, he speaks of his own flesh. It's like a man and a woman becoming one. And so here, um, all of Paul's theology comes from that one simple question that Jesus asked. It sounds like a simple question, but whenever God speaks, his words are so powerful because they are eternal. The words of God created the universe. And here the words of God gave Saul the kernel or the seed for all of his theology from that point on. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And even Paul's teaching on baptism is that baptism places us into Christ, and that Christ comes into us. And that's all the whole of Paul's theology right there in a nutshell. Paul walks blindly into the city of Damascus, those nine miles being led by the hand. The great warrior who's going in to kill people is now being led like a helpless blind man into the city. 
And then there's this poor guy named Ananias. You know, he's one of those Christians in Antioch that Paul was, going, I mean, in uh, Damascus that Paul was going to get. He was going to go up and arrest An- An- uh, Ananias and all the others. And God says, go talk to this man. And, and Ananias says, are you kidding? He's coming <laughs> to kill me. You want me to go talk to him? He says, yes. And then let me ask you this. Joe, if you go out and look for a job and you go to the employer and you're applying for a job, you're there to hear about how good your benefits are going to be, what your hours are going to be, how much you're going to be paid, and why you should want to come to work for this company. Well, what would happen if you walked in the door and sat down and the president of the company says, Joe, he says, I brought you in here to talk about hiring you, but first I want to know if you want you to know that if you work for me, I want you to know how much you're going to suffer. Here. You'd get up and walk out. Yeah, and this much. is the first thing that Paul hears. Ananias comes, he says, the Lord Jesus has sent me to come talk to you to tell you how much you're going to suffer for his name. And then he lays hands on him, and he says, Saul, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. You know, you would think, based on how many evangelicals preach, that Ananias should have come to Paul and say, Paul, I'm so glad you believed on Jesus and had faith alone. Now, why don't you ask him into your heart? Come on, we're going to pray the sinner's prayer together. Why You need to invite Jesus to come into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. Right. But you don't hear anything like that from the mouth of Ananias. What you hear is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the same message Peter preached on the first Holy Ghost gospel message ever preached under the big tent, you know, the revival <laughs> meeting. It was, what, what did Peter say under the first Holy Ghost gospel message ever preached? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. It doesn't sound very Baptist to me, but it sounds very Catholic. Right. (laughs) Wow. You know, a couple more thoughts came to mind when you were speaking of that. Is one, I've always wondered why at the the execution of St. Stephen, why Paul didn't throw any rocks. Why did he just stand there and approve of them and hold their cloaks? Was there some historical context as as to why we see him not throwing rocks? Well, my guess is that Paul was very dignified type of a guy, possibly. He wouldn't do the uh, the throwing of the rocks as much as he was maybe the one overseeing it and in charge of it because it says he was there giving his approval. And many people believe, many scholars believe, that actually Paul was at this point even part of the Sanhedrin oh. and that he was there as a representative of the Sanhedrin giving his approval to the action that's taken place. But just like if there's an execution, say, in Texas, you have somebody on death row. It's not the governor that goes to put the needle in the guy's arm. It's, it's the one who's hired to do that. And it's very likely that Paul was there not as the executioner, but as the one representing the Sanhedrin who was giving the stick, saying, okay, go ahead and let the other guys pull the switch. Wow. The other aspect that I, I was pondering on was being Ananias, you know, having having <laughs> to have this job of going to see this guy. What faith he must have had. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was probably just this... You know, local. I uh, was he a presbyter or, or a episcopal? I think he was just a simple gopher. You know, <laughs> just a guy like us. Right. <laughs> he was sent by his priest. That's even worse. <laughs> yes, I think so. You go see the murderer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, just pondering what his position must have been like. It must have required a lot of faith on his part to uh, to go and, and do that. So, wow, what a what a remarkable scene we have set before us now. Is St. Paul here is uh, now converted. He has received his marching orders. And so what, what's he do now? I mean, there's, 
Uh, is he heading straight out into the evangelization field? Is he going for formation? I mean, what's his life like now? Well, it's um, could you repeat that again? I, did, I There was a blip on the phone there, just the last part of it. Well, I'm just curious, what is St. Paul's life like now? He's been converted, he's repented, oh, okay. he's baptized. Is he, is, he, is he heading straight to the evangelization fields, or is he going for formation? What's, what's his focus yes, now? Yes, he actually he becomes a fireball of evangelism in Damascus, <laughs> where he was supposed to be killing these people or arresting them anyway, breathing threats of murder, it says. But at this point, he, is, uh, he begins evangelizing. He totally changes in 24 hours. And as soon as he's baptized, he starts preaching Jesus Christ as the Messiah, so much so that those who came with him from Jerusalem are now trying to kill him because of, he's one of the Christians. And so he has to escape in a basket coming down the wall of Damascus at night. And I did that when I, in my movie when we were filming, and I realized at that moment how tough Paul really was because when you're coming down a three-story wall and it's in the middle of the night and the basket is spinning and you don't know quite where you're going down, uh, or if there's going to be somebody with a sword waiting for you at the bottom. Paul was one tough guy, and I realized it when I was in that basket coming over the top there. And as long as we're on this really quickly, how tough was Paul? How, how much did he suffer for Jesus? In order to find out, all you had to do was say, Paul, take off your shirt. The reason being is that Paul was whipped like Jesus in Mel Gibson's movie. We have all seen that, and many of us had to close our eyes for part of that flogging scenes where he's being flogged, and yet Paul says that he was beaten with the, with those flagellums seven times. He was whipped like that, and three times he was beaten with rods, and he was one time stoned and left for dead, and he crawled out from under the pile of stones and went back into the city. He was bitten by snakes. Even in the movie, I had a snake bite me to show what it was like when I'm working with firewood, and he was shipwrecked, and he was uh, beaten untold time. I mean, the guy was as tough as nails, and if you'd have him take off his shirt, you would see all the scar tissue on his chest and on his back that he received from those whips and those flagellums. But he began to preach the gospel, and then we hit this, this very unusual period of about 14 years where it says Paul went away. Went away where? What was he doing? At one point, he says he went away to Arabia, mm-hmm. and then he says that Sinai is in Arabia. So my contention is that Saul, or Paul, after his conversion, went away to the mountain of Sinai, where the law had been given to Moses. What better place for the new law teacher of the law, the new one teaching the law of Christ, the one who is an heir of Moses, what better place for God to teach him than out into the wilderness? Even Jesus went into the wilderness, and he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Why not send Paul out to the wilderness, to Sinai, where Moses and Elijah both had revelations from God. Both of them had met God there on Mount Sinai, and we know that Paul had revelations of, of God, so much so that he said even taken up into the heavens that he couldn't even describe all that he had seen. And so if he says that he went to Arabia, and then he makes the comment that Sinai is in Arabia, it's very likely that he went there to Mount Sinai. But then we pick him up again over a decade later. He's in a city called Antioch. And here they've got a problem because Gentiles are starting to believe in Jesus the Messiah and thinking they're Christians, but they're not circumcised according to the law of Moses. When I gave a talk last night in Corpus Christi about this, I was holding up a flint knife, and I said that really the whole of the New Testament revolves around this, the flint knife. (laughs) God had met Abraham, 
and Abraham was going to be going to receive now after 25 years of still not owning the land, not having a son, all of his faith and obedience seeming to go to waste. And now God finally comes and says, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you the sign of the covenant because of your faith and your obedience. And Abraham thinks, oh my goodness, finally I'm going to get something worthwhile. And God hands him a flint knife and he says, Abraham, cut it off. Cut what off? Circumcise yourself, Abraham. And now Paul, there's this dilemma in Antioch that these Gentiles are thinking they could come to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who himself was circumcised at eight days. And they think they can have the Jewish Messiah without being circumcised? Well, that's when they went down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, I should say again. And that's where it was determined Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. They could come to Christ through faith and obedience, just like Abraham did. And by the way, that's where, in Antioch, we were first called Christians. And it wasn't a compliment. It was a slanderous thing. It was... You are those, those are the Gentiles who follow the one who was hung on a tree, the, who they call Christos, Christos, they are Christians. It was a slanderous thing. It was a mocking thing that they used against Christians. But that is now a banner of pride for us to be called Christians, where we were first called that in Antioch. And so now Paul goes around having this decree or the dogma from the Council of Jerusalem and they go around, him and Barnabas, and, and later Silas, they go around presenting this to all the churches and preaching the gospel to Jew and to Gentile alike. And how good that is for us, Joe. You're not Jewish, are you? I'm not Jewish. I would dare say that 99% of the people listening to this podcast right now are not Jewish. And therefore, what happened in the council and in Antioch with Saul is such a wonderful thing for us because we can now be accepted into the kingdom of God. We can have the Jewish Messiah and call him our own, even though we're the Gentile goyim unclean dogs. That's how the Jews viewed us. And now, even as Gentiles, we can become part of the economy of God. We now have hope. We now have God in the world, and we can be saved and made right with him, even though we're Gentiles. Mm. You know... Another one of these things I was thinking about was you hear it said all the time that uh, so many Christians gave their lives as martyrs in those early years. And that is a witness to the uh, veracity of the gospel. Right. You know, uh, but I would say that it's probably more of a witness. May, well, maybe that's extreme, but it's a, an extreme witness for someone to continue to accept to be beaten, to be jailed, to be stoned. And uh, ultimately martyred, but the, the sheer of m- amount of violence that St. Paul suffered on his body as a result to, to uh, preaching this gospel is yep. a tremendous witness. How many times, if you didn't truly believe this, how many times would you accept uh, a flogging with the cat of nine tails? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, about a half a swipe would be all you'd need to say, oh, That's I right. was just kidding. I made it all up. You know, but to And then do when it you have all of the apostles that went through these kind of martyrdoms, except right. for John, right. it really lends great credence to what they were saying. Right. Well, even John was boiled, and it just didn't work out. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> it just turned out to be a hot tub for the guy, but... Um, yeah, this is a tremendous witness. I think we, we, we sort of glance over that particular passage uh, too often, and we don't really stop and ponder that. The fact that this man received so many beatings and received so much violence and yet persevered, that is, that's tremendous. I, I can't even begin to fathom having to endure that kind of suffering. 
and and the whole idea that Protestants have a faith alone and once saved, always saved. Paul didn't have that concept. He says, I keep struggling every day right. so that I don't lose my yeah. the resurrection from the dead. Right. I keep struggling every day and working. And then at the end, he says in his last letter, Second Timothy, written around 66 A.D. to his son in the faith, Timothy. And by the way, he calls himself Timothy's father in the faith. So much for call no man father. Right. He calls Timothy, I'm your father in the faith. You're my son. And he's in prison in the Mamertine prison, having been condemned by Nero, who is such a monster, he killed his own mother. He now has Paul in prison in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he writes to Timothy and asks and begs Timothy to come to him in his last days and to bring a cloak because it was so cold in the prison and to bring his parchments. He still wanted to read and study even when he was there, even while rats were nipping at his flesh and he was scrambling and fighting over food with other prisoners. In a, in a hole in the ground where human excrement was never cleaned out of it. This is how he ended his last days before they finally took him out and beheaded him and mm-hmm. cut his head off. And all of this he willingly accepted for Jesus Christ. He knew it was true. And this is what we need to impress upon people today in our culture, where we've been taught by the schools and by the philosophy and the media that there is really no truth, that really whatever makes you happy is okay and there's no ultimate truth. And that's a bunch of hooey. Because we, there is an ultimate truth. There is a God out there who created everything. And to have an idea that nothing, there is no truth, is completely contrary to the way God made us. And Paul knew it was true, and he was willing to die for what he knew was true. Wow. Well, Steve, I think we should uh, wrap this up by talking about your DVD. And you also have an upcoming pilgrimage that uh, it's a cruise. Is that not true? That is. In March of 2009... We are taking a cruise. It's called a St. Paul cruise in the footprints of St. Paul. We're going to go around the Mediterranean Sea, and it's not that expensive, really. It's no more than a pilgrimage to, uh, say, to Israel or to uh, Rome or something. And we're going to take this cruise ship, and we're going to start in Greece and and go to Athens and Corinth and see those places where Paul preached and two letters are written to Corinth. And then we're going to go across and visit a couple Greek islands and then go visit Ephesus and have Mass at Mary's house in Ephesus where Paul lived for two years. Then we're going to go along to a few places that he traveled. um, And then we're going to end up another day in Antioch and Tarsus, the place where Paul was born and where we were first called Christians in Antioch. And then we're going to go two days to Israel and one day to Egypt on this cruise ship. On uh, It's March 4 through the 14. And if anybody wants to learn more about it, we're going to have it up on my website in the next couple days at catholicconvert.com. Um, so that's my website, catholicconvert.com. And then I also have, I think it's a unique thing, um, the only kind of uh, DVD or documentary like this that there is for the year of St. Paul it's what my wife and I filmed for in six countries called Paul Contending for the Faith. And you can get that on my website as well, catholicconvert.com. It's 90 minutes long with a very comprehensive study guide. And if they go to my website, you know, in the, the month of July or August or so, or even more, it's always on there, they can download free a color timeline of St. Paul that I made that show all of the epistles and all of his writings in the context of Scripture and the books that he wrote. It's a very good handy-dandy guide to St. Paul for this year. And you can just go on my website, click it, and download it. It's free. Outstanding. Wow, you're a busy guy, Steve. You've been well, up so to are a you, lot Joe? of speaking. Well, you know, not quite as busy as you, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so you've done a lot of work. You, you're still producing your 10-part uh, DVD series, and that is scheduled to wrap up when? Well, we still have three to go. Probably a 
four or five more years. Um, they take a year and a half to make, and we're right now working on Abraham. Uh, in a couple of months, we're going to be flying to Iraq, to Turkey, and to Israel to film that one. Because uh, Abraham started just south of Baghdad near the Persian Gulf and Ur of the Chaldees. Wow, so that one's wow. going to be called Abraham, Father of Faith and Works. Wow, that's wow. going to, we'll have to pray for you there. Are, are you a little bit nervous about going no, to Iraq? No, only at all. thrilled. Only thrilled. <laughs> good man, good man. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time today and being a guest on the show now twice and sharing your ministry with us and, and all of your great work and your enthusiasm for St. Paul. It's really going to help us to get a perspective on the year of St. Paul. And what a what a joy to be able to go on a pilgrimage like that for the year of St. Paul. So I highly encourage everybody to check that out. CatholicConvert.com. Thank you, Joe. God bless you, Steve. Special thanks to Steve Ray once again for coming on to the podcast and sharing with us his great insight into St. Paul. I know I was pretty excited about the year of St. Paul, focusing on this great evangelist in our church's history. It's always amazed me how much abuse St. Paul took in order to further the gospel and evangelize non-believers, to evangelize the Gentiles, and yes, even the Jews. So praise God's name, man, that we had such a great evangelist as St. Paul in our church, and we look for more St. Pauls. And so we're praying that maybe you, maybe you are called to be just like St. Paul today and evangelize your society, evangelize your environments through the spreading of the gospel. Please do that today. Listen to the voice of God within you and discern whether he is calling you to the same thing. Well, speaking of conversion, I pray that you've had the opportunity to stop by www.convertobama.com and sign up, pledge your Lenten sacrifices and prayers for the conversion of President Obama, a reversal of his pro-death policies, and an end to abortion in our country. This is a common interest. It doesn't matter what what political party you affiliate with, not interested, don't even care really, because that makes little difference compared to we all want to see life perpetuated and not snuffed out in this country. That's important across all party lines. And so ultimately, this is a project of love, not of hate. We pray for the conversion of President Obama, and we also pray, as I said before, for a culture of life in this country. Make sure you stop by the blog at www.catholichack.com where there you can download this episode. You can leave comments on the blog. You can buy merchandise. Go to the Catholic Hack bookstore. Pick up some resources this Lent, such as the, the book from Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich on the dollar's passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That can all be had right off of the blog. That's catholichack.com. Make sure you leave me a voicemail, feedback. Love to get your voicemail feedback. Haven't had one in a few weeks now. That's probably because I haven't put out a show in a few weeks now. Well, there you go. 713-568-6277. That's 
568-628-6277. And as always, we could always use your reviews on iTunes, especially the good ones. I had a few bad ones, and that lowered my ranking in the store, which makes it that much harder to reach new listeners. Well, please consider doing that today. Until next time, I'm praying for you. Please pray for me. God bless. From the Catholic Underground.